Welcome to the Good Neighbours podcast. This is a series on the UK and its relations with the EU and European countries after Brexit. We look at the EU-UK relationship, consider how the relationship compares with the EU's relations with its other neighbours, and discuss the UK's new bilateral relations in Europe. I'm Hussein Kassin, Professor of Politics at the University of East Anglia and a Senior Fellow of the UK and Changing Europe. And I'm Dr Cleo Davis, Senior Research Associate on Negotiating the Future. Today, we look at the Northern Ireland Protocol, which has been at the centre of an ongoing crisis between the UK and the EU. We discuss its significance, why the Irish border is an issue, and how we got here. We are delighted to be joined by our expert guests, Katie Hayward, Professor of Political Sociology at Queen's University Belfast and a Senior Fellow of the UK in a Changing Europe, where she leads a project on the future and status of Northern Ireland after Brexit. And David Finnemore, who is also based at Queen's University Belfast in Northern Ireland, and where he is Professor of European Politics, currently working on Brexit and its impact on the EU, Northern Ireland and the Island of Ireland. He is also visiting professor at the College of Europe in Bruges. So the Northern Irish, well, the Protocol on Northern on Ireland and Northern Ireland is part of the withdrawal agreement that people have heard most about and is possibly the most controversial. Can you remind our listeners why the Irish border emerged as an issue, issue sorry, in the context of the UK's decision to leave the EU and why a special arrangement for the border was necessary? So obviously the UK withdrawing from the EU means a harder border between the UK and the EU, both in terms of customs procedures being required, but also in terms of regulatory checks and controls. Um, And the harder that Brexit, the the harder that border. Um, So from very early on, the UK and the EU recognised that such a border was going to be very difficult to manage on the island of Ireland for two reasons. One is the nature of the land border itself um, with 270 odd crossing points. Um, And the other is the symbolism of the Irish border, which obviously gets to the very heart of the conflict and tension in Northern Ireland historically between unionists and nationalists, um, but also has been attempting to be addressed by the Good Friday Belfast Agreement. And the openness of the Irish border has been a really important part of that peace process, most particularly in enabling nationalists in Northern Ireland to feel relatively comfortable in Northern Ireland's continued place in the UK, appreciating the fact that North-South cooperation is meaningful and significant and continues, and that there is such a thing, for example, as the all-island economy. So recognising the concerns of nationalists, the vast majority of whom voted to remain, recognising the practical difficulties of having a hard border on the island of Ireland. The UK and the EU had a, was their top three priorities in the withdrawal negotiations, trying to avoid such a hard border. And hence they came up with, after several rounds and versions, the Protocol on Ireland, Northern Ireland, in the withdrawal agreement that sees, for the most part, those checks and controls taking place on sea and air entry points into Northern Ireland. And of course, this includes goods coming from Britain into the north. Um, I think one of, one of the other points to possibly remember as to why it proved so, so problematic, um, so, so prominent also, was that the EU was insistent that arrangements were agreed um, as part of the withdrawal, withdrawal agreement. Um, and the UK were obviously resistant to that because they wanted to, the discussions about the future of the, the, the land border to be part of the discussions about the post-Brexit UK-EU trading relationship. Um, and so I think that, that, that insistence on the part of the EU that this was, was dealt with during the negotiations proved highly problematic for, for, the, for the UK. And I don't think the UK really had much choice um, other than to accept it had to be addressed. Otherwise, they weren't going to get a deal with the EU on the terms of withdrawal. Thank you. That's great. I, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, Katie, you mentioned and David that it's a priority. It was a priority for the, uh, for the EU. So, how much did the Irish border feature during the re- referendum campaign in Northern Ireland and in the UK more generally? I think it's fair to say it didn't feature at all, really, in the in the UK wide referendum campaign from either side, and it didn't feature greatly in Northern Ireland either. I mean, our referendum campaign was fairly short because of elections here. And I think there was still this sense of uncertainty around what Brexit actually meant and really whether we were talking about 
the UK leaving the single market, because bear in mind, of course, even some leave campaigners were saying that the UK definitely wouldn't do that. So the Irish border didn't feature too much, although it it was certainly raises a concern here, particularly from nationalist parties and from the Irish government as well. It was mentioned as a key concern in a joint letter that was very rare from the Deputy First Minister and the First Minister at the time from Northern Ireland, um, writing to the Prime Minister um, and saying they were concerned that things wouldn't change radically after Brexit, recognising the unique situation of the Irish border and and the importance of movement across it and the, and the political significance of it as well. I think if, if I could just echo the point about the, the limited nature of the campaign in Northern Ireland, um, it was fairly lacklustre as well as being short. As Katie said, we were coming out of assembly elections in which we had the whole question of whether some of the, the parties which had previously formed the executive would go into opposition. And that was the big sort of discussion point for, for the two or three weeks after the, the election. And then we found, OK, we got the referendum coming up. Um, moreover, I think, whereas a number of the political parties adopted fairly firm positions, so the SDLP and Alliance were making it clear that they were going to support and um, remain. Sinn Féin were going to remain critical of the EU, but did not want to support Brexit. The UUP wasn't too sure which way it wanted to go, whether to support Leave or Remain, and eventually sort of said, okay, well, we as a party support Remain, but we're essentially not, not forcing that on our, on our, our members. Um, and, and the DUP were, were fairly low profile in, in their campaigning. Um, they weren't necessarily going out and championing the cause of, of, of Leave. And also what we had as part of the discussion in Northern Ireland was a fairly simplistic approach adopted by some of those in uh, government, um, notably sort of Theresa Villiers and Owen, I mean, former Secretary of State for, for Northern Ireland, and then Owen Paxton, saying, well, look, don't worry, it's not going to be an issue. Um, Northern Ireland will be, will be fine, nothing to worry about. Um, this is actually a great opportunity. So it wasn't really discussed. And uh, yeah, then obviously once we had the referendum result, uh, people d- did begin to discuss it far more, um, particularly in Northern Ireland. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's a very good overview. Thank you, David. Turning to the negotiations, uh, we now think in terms of the solution agreed by Theresa May with the famous backstop um, that was voted down in the House of Commons um, in, in early 2019. Um, we also um, yeah, think about um, Boris Johnson's renegotiated version, which got rid of the backstop, came to be adopted as part of that oven-ready deal and came into operation when the UK left the um, EU on the 31st of January 2020. Could you um, tell us a bit about the difference between these two um, solutions? We'll come on to that um, in a moment. But first, uh, could you let us know how the EU and the UK approached the um, the issue of the border? I think it's very clear that the Irish government and Irish officials are really very important in shaping how the EU approached uh, the difficulty, first and foremost, in explaining the significance of the Good Friday Belfast Agreement um, and why it was there and the uniqueness of it, but also then in giving some depth and richness to understanding of the nature of the Irish border and movement across it um, and the complexity of that movement and the importance of those open uh, crossings. Um, and so I think that that was present at critical moments, the, the closest of the Irish to um, the position taken by the EU is really notable. Obviously, it's been picked up since by unionists who are concerned around the nature of the protocol and and think that there was a little too much influence from the Irish there. But without a doubt, um, they worked very hard to push that issue. So to both um, obviously urge for the respecting of the single market, uh, but at the same time to show that there would be flexibility required from the EU and, as they say, sort of imaginative solutions put forward, um, bearing in mind the very unique circumstances here and the political sensitivities. What was important there is if we look at the EU's immediate response to the UK triggering Article 50, it came out within a matter of weeks with its guidelines and fairly prominent in those guidelines was this statement on the Northern Ireland dimension um, and the need to avoid um, a hard border. Um, or at least pursue flexible and imaginative solutions, um, including with the aim of avoiding a, a hard border. And I think when you've got that sort of endorsement at the European Council level, it really sort of set the tone for the negotiations. And this was something which the heads of government, heads of state had, had, were buying into. And, uh, and then that was reflected in a lot of the narrative 
which um, informed the EU's position um, thereafter. We saw that in many of the pronouncements of the likes of Michel Barnier and others. What, what's, what's surprising when you look at the sort of chronology of the history of the negotiations is that the UK seems to be very reluctant to bring forth any kind of solution. I mean, it talks about um, you know, technology and the facilitated um, you know, customs and, 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 and all of that, but it, it seemed like it really had to be sort of you know, dragged, I don't know, I don't want to say kicking and screaming to the, to the negotiator on this issue, but there, there seemed to be a moment where the UK said, uh, the EU said, um, um, well, at least let's start drawing up a list of what, um, you know, you need to tell us what's ha- what's going to happen, but um, you need to draw up a list of, of the issues that are affected by um, by this. Can, can we start Can we start from there? Um, I mean, why do you think it was so difficult for the UK to, to respond to that? I mean, I think there's been, I mean, even now, if we look at what's happening at Britain's borders with the EU and how slow UK is to fully implement border checks and controls um, and how unprepared business was for managing Brexit in some in some cases. I, I just think there's been um, almost a sort of a denial of what Brexit means for borders. And as early as in 2017, August 2017, when the UK was putting forward some white papers on what might be done with respect to the, the, the um, island of Ireland, they seem very naive in many ways. The solutions were never really forthcoming from the UK side. And if you think about after the joint report of December 2018, it was up to the, um, sorry, 2017, beg your pardon. It was up to the UK to put forward solutions. It wanted to do so because of the, um, the, you know, the wish not to have to make the difficult decision around whether Northern Ireland should have particular arrangements or not. And yet it failed to do so. Um, and I think this doesn't just reflect political differences in the leadership in, in, in the UK, but also just, you know, te- technical misunderstandings perhaps around what is required. Um, and so, yes, we saw that process very, very evident throughout um, in um, alternative solutions that were put forward, alternative arrangements and all of that debate. Um, and I think a real problem was just how little engagement there was with business and with stakeholders, particularly the Northern Ireland officials, in a, um, in a sort of transparent way or in a consistent rather than ad hoc way, um, because there was ultimately when they came to the arrangements, um, there was just too little sense of what this would actually mean in practice from either side recognising the nature of Northern Ireland's economy and the nature of trade, um, east-west as well as north-south. Two, two points to, to this. One is, I think, what we saw throughout 2017-18, and indeed we still see it today to a large extent, is this tension between the willingness on the EU side to do something flexible and imaginative for Northern Ireland in order to address the border issue. And on the, on the other hand, the UK desperately trying to avoid any differentiated treatment of Northern Ireland compared to the rest of the UK. And this was obviously reinforced by the position of the DUP from from 2017 onwards after the general election, where they basically had this the supply and confidence agreement with the um, Conservatives, which kept them in power. And I think as we as we went through this is part of this, the second point as we went through 2017 the uk is coming to terms more with okay what the challenges are around the border what the challenges are particularly around the land border because let's let's remember that very very few people in in london have a direct experience of a land border as part of the day-to-day um existence their day-to-day day life um and this the challenge was to sort of try and find ways in which you might address the 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 need to avoid the hard, hard border while at the same time not Literally differentiating Northern Ireland from from the rest of the UK to keep to keep the DUP happy, and that that I think on both counts, I think the UK government understood that they may have to get down the differentiated route, but literally couldn't find the way to do it. Um, while also this goes back to sort of Daniel Kellerman's sort of trilemma of uh, managing sort of leaving the single market, leaving the customs union, avoiding a hard, hard border, but then not having differentiated treatment of, of Northern Ireland. And of course, by the time that the UK had to address the the issue of Northern Ireland, it already made made its decision on those two other issues. So, so that was that was what was problematic. Um, can you just remind us what um, uh, about what uh, Theresa May said 
this is something to which no British PM could agree. What was she talking about? And why, why was that a problem for, in the negotiations? She said that in response to a draft, the draft protocol issued by the EU in February 2018, um, in which Northern Ireland was put in a distinct arrangements, you know, unique arrangements, including um, customs checks and controls on the Irish Sea and regulatory checks and controls. Um, so um, she was very adamant that this was unacceptable. And that had the effect of them provoking the UK government to go back in and try and revise that version of the protocol. And of course, that's what they ended up with in November. And that was the compromise on the part of the UK then in certain commitments to align with the EU rules in order to minimize uh, or avoid those checks and controls on the Irish Sea. Um, now, of course, then um, the final version of the protocol, if it is the final version of the protocol that was come up with in 2019 was very much like that put forward by the EU in the, um, in the previous year, the trees made rejected so clearly. Um, not least because we didn't have then the, the commitments from the UK to minimise that Irish Sea border. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of you know curious because this this was one of those examples where the the EU really did um, um, shift its position because you know it was very unhappy about the the possibility of a UK wide um, you know, backstop effectively and um, you know something that that you know there's vicar resistance on the part of, um, of of France and other member states. Um, I mean, you know, is this a UK victory in that sense of getting getting you know what it wanted? I mean, or is it a compromise on? I, th I think when we, when we got to the UK's rejection of the initial um, draft um, protocol that came through from, from the Commission, um, on the EU side, they wanted to find a solution. I think both sides wanted to avoid um, a no-deal Brexit. And I think this forced the Commission into coming up with some ideas as to how you may address the concerns of um, the, the UK. Um, and hence, we saw the, this idea of keeping the UK in um, a customs union and keeping Northern Ireland in the customs union. Um, so I, I think it was a fairly pragmatic uh, approach on both sides to ensure that there was uh, agreed terms for, for withdrawal, which delivered on what was one of the key priorities of the, the EU, which was to avoid that hard border on the island of Ireland. Mm. I mean, we shouldn't forget that there was an awful lot of speculation and throwing random ideas around in terms of um, alternatives to the protocol and the backstop that, that Johnson was involved in, um, and a lot of sort of distracting ideas about technological solutions, et cetera, at that time. So, um, yes, there was the threat of no deal. Theresa May had used that threat many times as well, of course. Um, but when it came to the agreement that they formed, in October 2019, there was a little bit of surprise that they had managed to do so. And uh, there is sort of a sense that um, Boris Johnson's meeting with Leo Varadkar's uh, Taoiseach was um, really critical in that. What was notably different from Theresa May's deal was that we were no longer talking about a backstop arrangement, this was very much a front stop. So uh, we knew that Northern Ireland was going to be in this position regardless of the version of the TCA, either i.e. being treated differently from the rest of the UK. It was de facto in this EU single market for goods. It was de facto in the um, customs union of the EU because applying the union customs code on goods coming in that you see in airports. Um, one very important um, difference from previous versions of the protocol was the inclusion of a democratic consent vote in Article 18, um, which David is better at explaining than me. Um, but essentially what that meant was trying to reassure unionists who'd raised the question of consent um, that MLAs in the Northern Ireland Assembly would have the opportunity to vote on the protocol. Um, and thus when Boris Johnson presented it to the House of Commons and uh, trumpeted it, he was able to say this upholds the letter and the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement and um, addresses unions' concerns that have been raised around the previous version of the protocol. What I'd also add to the, the context here is what I would see in 
Boris Johnson coming to power was this desperate desire to get Brexit done, to actually sort of lance the boil of the withdrawal process and get the UK out of the EU on negotiated terms. And I think there was always a suspicion that if he if he was to pursue an agreement at almost any cost, um, someone was going to be uh, upset here. Was that going to be the DUP? Um, because the UK would accept differentiated arrangements for Northern Ireland? Um, or was he going to pursue something which would possibly take the UK out of the EU without a, without a deal? Um, he went for the deal, and the part of that was conceding on treatment of Northern Ireland differently. So we actually reached this rather strange situation where we were far closer to the original proposal coming from the EU as a backstop arrangement to what was being proposed for Theresa May and what had actually been agreed by Theresa May. So not the best deal as far as Northern Ireland was, was concerned. That said, um, he did secure the consent mechanism, which I think at the time was seen to be quite an important move. Um, because it did mean to say that every four years you'd have a, pension, a, a vote on whether you wanted to continue with the core elements of the of the of the protocol, um, avoiding the, the hard border on the island of Ireland, and that if you did see that rejected, um, if, you did, if there was no consent coming from MLAs, you'd be voting, you'd be um, two years to work out what arrangements you'd put put in its place. Um, if you did secure cross community support for it, it'd be eight years later. And I think that was sent. That was obviously designed to to meet the, one of the key concerns that DUP had at the time that there needed to be a consent mechanism. You spoke about the circumstances under which the um, the protocol was 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 agreed, and a number of the people involved have said that um, that the that this this agreement was only reached um, because the UK was under so much pressure. Or the UK government was under so much pressure. Um, it was done at a moment of weakness. And David Foster said that um, the EU and Ireland designed the protocol according to their political needs, with the aim of keeping Northern Ireland within the EU regulatory framework, which is a, a bit of a, a stronger position. Is this a fair assessment, do you think, of the politics of the time of the um, negotiations? As David says, it was very much Boris Johnson's desire to get Brexit done and to add the intensity of the time pressure there. And I do wonder... You know, if they're saying that about the withdrawal agreement, I mean, think how much more quickly the TCA was negotiated and whether we might have a future point at which they say, well, we did this under enormous time pressure and golly, look what a, <laughs> what a disappointment that has proved to be. I don't know. The more serious point is, I, I think, of course, this question of uh, the rewriting or the, the narrative that has come forward around the joint report, the significance of that and how the protocol came to be and the fact that it's the same people who are involved in negotiating it who are, who are throwing doubt on its validity as, as an agreement in the first place, which I don't think is all that significant except for two things. One is about what that means for the UK in other negotiations. And the second is around this idea that it was EU... Irish conspiracy, and that certainly affects unionist concerns around the protocol and a sense that they have lost in the arrangements of the protocol, that they were sold up the river by the British government, but more particularly that it was deliberately designed to weaken Northern Ireland's place in the UK Union. And so those narratives from Frost, et cetera, definitely compound the sense of seriousness and threat that people, um, that certain unionists feel associated with the protocol. I think, yes, the UK was in a position of weakness in the autumn of 2019, but it was very much a self-imposed weakness. It had set its, its intention of get, getting the UK out, getting getting a, a deal done. And so it essentially was, was putting the time pressure on itself. Okay, there was additional pressures coming because of the parliamentary pro process, but that decision to, to, to get a deal and get the UK out as soon as possible um, did, did contribute to, to a weakening of, of their position when the EU was very, very um, strong in its position and very, very determined to ensure that it safeguarded the interests of one of its member states' island. Which I think it's one of the other interesting things about, about the process, the extent to which the solidarity existed with Ireland on this. And then also, I think you've got during that, that period, the key issue, which is still not resolved about Brexit, is coming to terms with the realities of, of leaving um, the single market and the customs union and what that means for borders. 
Is there an account of those negotiations that you found particularly persuasive that sort of shows the sort of the day-to-day or sort of weekly movement of the, those negotiations so that we, an interested reader could find them? The closest we've probably got is Michel Barnier's um, diary. One of the things we need to, to remember is there wasn't actually a lot of time spent negotiating. A lot of the delay in the period between the UK's um, the start of the negotiations and eventually the agreement between Boris Johnson uh, the Boris Johnson agreement it was was with internal UK processes, um, and so you actually had sort of if, if you go back to 2017-18, its first six four five months is spent on negotiations, and then the EU is waiting for the UK to work out what it's going to do. We get the Chequers proposal, then you move into a period of, of sort of intense negotiations in, in the autumn. You get the May deal, um, and then we're stuck with the parliamentary process for much of 2018 uh, 2019. And then you have this, this period in sort of late August, September through to, well, mainly October 2019, when there's negotiations to, to, to pull the, the, the final deal um, together. Um, I think we, and there wasn't, okay, there's newspaper reports co- coming out, but uh, I don't think anybody's really sat down and done the, the, the full um, de- detail of it. Plus also there was key moments when they were inside the tunnel. Um, we simply do not know what was going backwards and forwards there and what sort of documents were on the table. One of the things we actually lack in, in our understanding of this process is um, documents in terms of negotiating um, drafts. Um, the process started fairly open, but uh, very soon it was, it was very difficult to find what was being put on the table. Um, for example, we know in October two, 2019, the UK government sent some draft text along to the EU. Um, as, okay, this is what we want. This is our version of the protocol. I don't think any of that has ever seen the light of day. Did parties from Northern Ireland or communities have a direct role at all in the negotiations? Were they were they consulted by Number Ten, by the uh, or by the chief negotiator? Do, do we know anything about that? So we know, no, but we have to bear in mind that there was no functioning assembly or executive at the time, from early twenty seventeen, which certainly affected the environment and the um, how Northern Ireland was represented and heard. Most particularly, it, it certainly meant that MPs in Westminster, particularly the DUP, were possibly disproportionately important. For civil society, business and others, I think the most significant moment perhaps was after Theresa May's deal and when she attempted to bring business on board. So, yes, he saw some political parties and, and some civic groups would did have access to the commission. But it's really about representation in terms of these are our urgent concerns. Most particularly important at that time was human rights organisations in Northern Ireland. They were very anxious around what Brexit would mean and very effective, I think, in getting the points across. And hence, we see from very early versions of the protocol that protections are put in there for human rights one point to add to that is if we go back to Theresa May becoming Prime Minister and talking about Brexit means Brexit and then proceeding to, to get to get it done, she made reference to the UK leaving as the United Kingdom and also involving the devolved administrations in what would she hope would be a United UK approach to the negotiations. Not much came of that. I think when one thinks about the internal structures. Um, which link the um, devolved administrations with, with central government, they simply did not function effectively. Um, and we saw that with the rather poor showing of the activities of the, the Joint Ministerial Committee. Also think as part of it, we should mention when we're talking about the negotiation of the protocol, is almost the shadow of Scotland, which was cast over this process, that um, Scotland, having voted to remain quite convincingly, was very, very keen to secure some sort of differentiated arrangement as part of the withdrawal process. And so obviously was following very, very closely what might be happening with regard to Northern Ireland. And also given the resistance within um, the Conservative Party to any revival of interest in Scotland in in independence, they were pushing back on on the differentiated treatment, but also then not necessarily wanting to have have too much discussion about special arrangements for, for Northern Ireland. Fear that this would just heighten expectations and demands coming from 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 Scotland. So as, I think as a part of the consequence consequence of this, also the fact that we did not have a devolved administration in place in Northern Ireland, things were very very tightly run in Westminster. My re- reflections are that the sort of civil servants were saying that sort of the the, the the engagement ebbed and flowed according to when information was required. Um, there wasn't necessarily a, a coherent structure which saw the sort of regular consultation of the devolved administrations, particularly Northern Ireland 
on, on what the arrangements should be. That said, as Katie said, we, we do see elements of the protocol where you can see ship changes taking place. And those, I think, were partly due to um, interests being represented, whether that be from business, human rights organisations, or indeed civil servants in, in Northern Ireland feeding into the process. If we move on now to days or the days after the actual coming into application of the protocol, early 2021, it, it seems like even before, uh, in the late 20, in the autumn of 2020, the EU was concerned that the UK did not intend to implement the protocol. Um, partly, there was a lack of planning and investment in physical uh, or other infrastructure. What is your view on this? Uh, I think in terms of how the about the you know the coming to force of the protocol worked or didn't work, it goes back to that question of basically the UK getting its head around what border controls mean and what's required. And a big issue is information and clarity. So because of the nature of Brexit and the whole debate around it, there was definitely a lack of clear information being given around the implications of Brexit and the protocol in particular. So um, when it came into force, in January 21 in real time, then there was the, a big issue was basically that businesses, particularly in Britain, hadn't known how to prepare or what to expect. And so all during the transition period, businesses in Northern Ireland have been so clear. Uh, what about this? What about that? You know, where's this? Where's that? And in many cases, the decisions weren't made and the information wasn't provided. Um, so the disruptive effect of Brexit in Northern Ireland, compounded by, of course, um, the COVID pandemic, was more than it might otherwise have been. But fairly soon after that, we had significant doubts being raised around the UK's intention of implementing the protocol, not least when David Frost replaced Michael Gove as co-chair of the Joint Committee and his immediate extension of the grace period um, that would have concluded at the end of March. And then, uh, understandably, perhaps, given the, the narrative that then he began to put forward about the protocol, there were serious doubts raised almost deliberately about whether the UK is serious about implementing this thing. At the same time, it's invested hundreds of millions of pounds into operating the protocol. And a lot of the issues with respect to, so there's two big things. I think one is that we don't have border control posts yet built in Northern Ireland. And a big part of that is because that ultimately comes down to the devolved ministers here and the minister responsible here is DUP. And the other issues is around sharing of data. And a big part of that is that the UK simply wasn't equipped to share that data um, and has only recently done so and still not um, sufficiently, um, as we see from the recent the announcement of infringement proceedings on that matter. So uh, yes, it's a lot of a mix of lack of preparation, a lack of simple ability to implement it, plus the political doubts around the will to do it as well. Thank you. Thanks, Katie. I think what, what we've seen is that during the withdrawal negotiations, there was an acceptance that you need to have flexible and imaginative solutions for Northern Ireland. You had to sort of treat it or be prepared to treat it somewhat differently to the rest of the, the, the UK, depending on, on what sort of UK-EU relationship there was. We probably lost that once the terms of the agreement had been um, reached and you moved into a fairly orthodox approach of the EU to the implementation of what has been agreed. What we've now, I think, over the last couple of years, we, we've seen is the EU move for, back into that space of appreciating, like, well, there's got to be further flexibility here, but once again, resistant to doing so, um, unless there's flexibility or, or evidence that the UK is meeting the, the obligations um, to, to, to a reasonable extent. Um, under the withdrawal agreement. And I, I think this is when you then had the implementation of the, the agreement being driven not just by a commitment to obligations under, under the treaty, but a, a fundamental challenging of the, the obligations from essentially an ideological perspective, um, where a lot of the um, content of the command paper last summer was obviously driven by what perceived to be some of the difficulties in implementing the protocol in Northern Ireland, but also there are elements in there which were reflecting far more of an ideological approach to the UK leaving the EU and wanting to have a harder form of Brexit and also the UK being treated as a whole rather than this differentiated treatment of Northern Ireland. 
Thank you. You mentioned uh, briefly that the uh, problems on the ground. I mean, what are the views on the ground in Northern Ireland about um, about this ongoing uh, tensions? All political parties in Northern Ireland recognise that there's a need for adjustment to the protocol. Um, and the picture in terms of business is mixed in that some doing very well from the protocol, especially exporting businesses, local producers are doing well. Um, but those relying on supplies from GB are still suffering, particularly small businesses. So it, it is a complicated and mixed picture. I think in terms of the experience of the protocol, um, so we're all, all of us across Europe and beyond are experiencing empty shelves at the moment. And some people can say that's to blame on the protocol or um, wider global factors. So um, there is that. But I think more broadly, I mean, um, through David's project on post-Brexit governance, we do regular polling and we see that opinions on the protocol have shifted over the course of 2021 to 22 uh, to being more in favour of the protocol, most notably significant rise in those who think there are economic opportunities from the protocol. Biggest concerns remain around political stability and what it means for that. Notably, the DUP and its supporters are very different in that they see the protocol as a very much a, a major concern connected to the constitutional status of Northern Ireland. And they are welcoming of unilateral action on the part of the, of the UK. Yeah, I think there's, it is interesting the way in which um, suppose public opinion differs from what is the, the headline political narrative. Um, there does seem to be across the polls a sort of honestly enthusiastic, enthusiastic endorsement of, of, the, of the protocol, but an, an, an acceptance that, okay, well, Brexit means some pretty tough choices. Brexit means that um, borders have got to go somewhere. There's going to be checks and controls. And actually, for most people or the majority, they're resigned acceptance of, of these arrangements. Um, also, I think what you're seeing is people wanting sort of practical solutions. What was interesting in the polling which we did last year was flagging up medicines was just the real concern for so many people. That was the top issue. Um, and I suppose it's, it's good to see the UK or the EU responding on that. And there's there's some new arrangements in place which go a good way to addressing the, the, the con concerns. I think what you're also seeing is that it, whereas the emphasis at the moment is on okay, well, what should be done on the EU side to make more accommodations, and there's a strong argument to say there needs to be more done there. What we're also picking up is people say, well, okay, well, part of this is to do with the nature of the UK-EU relationship as well. That if we actually go back to Katie mentioned them earlier, commitments which the UK government made under Theresa May to maintain regulatory alignment in the areas of the covered by the protocol, maintain regulatory alignment with the EU, then you could ease a lot of the, the tensions that we're actually seeing. Now, that's something which doesn't actually feature in the, U, the GB debate about what to do with the protocol as much as you do pick it up here. Thank you. So, so looking um, ahead, other areas of the broader UK-EU relationship appear to be hostage to disputes um, around the implementation or the non-implementation of the protocol, and and in particular, any sort of thoughts of making the relationship warmer or or um, or more positive seem to be you know, prevented by this. And we've heard lots of threats about triggering Article 16, for example. And bills that will override the um, that will give minister, you know, UK ministers the power to override parts of the protocol. Do you think there's any prospect of a, a breakthrough in the in the impasse? What would have to happen, or should we just assume there's going to be no no movement? I think one of the problems we find ourselves in is the EU is saying we're not going to renegotiate the text of the protocol. That what's there in black and white is is staying. Whereas the UK is insistent that there needs to be change in the language of the protocol um, and are not willing to, to see if there's other ways of pursuing the easements um, and adjustments to the implementation of the protocol, which certainly a lot of people in Northern Ireland are looking um, for. And there just seems to be some sort of fundamental problem of principle here, that the UK is insistent on a renegotiation, the EU is refusing renegotiation and there seems to be a sort of a failure to appreciate well really explore what can you do within the framework of the protocol because there's an institutional structure there designed to identify issues problems and try and find some sort of negotiated solution to them um, and I think my view of the last two years is I don't think those 
channels have necessarily been fully exhausted. And equally, I think what we've seen with the example of medicines, which is, is interesting, whether it would just be a one-off where the EU has been willing to go back to some of its laws and make adjustments, whether there's a willingness to, to pick up on that example and do it elsewhere. Uh, on one hand, there's this sort of, you know, the, the, the image of, of EU obduracy, but you know, there have been many meetings of the Joint Committee, for example, and also there have been... Um, you know, the, the, the EU's approach was to sort of make direct contact on the ground with stakeholders and all the lines to discover what the practical issues were. And I suppose the other, and the, and the sort of follow-up question is, is, you know, the, the focus certainly in the UK tends to be on um, Marashevkovich and the um, Commission Vice President and on the Commission, but but actually aren't the, aren't the member states actually, you know, more hardline in, on, on this? Um, you know, we saw that whole sort of sequence of um, a whole list of foreign ministers who, who um for example, stood up um, you know, recently to sort of you know, protest the, the bill that's, that's been adopted. It's interesting the extent to which the, um, the governance arrangements for the protocol have evolved somewhat since, um, the, uh, since, the, since they were put in place. And it is interesting to see the extent to which you, you've got consultation of um, civil society, you've got consultation of um, business representatives by the UK and the EU, um, and also a willingness to do these, um, on some occasions, to do things um, jointly. Um, we've also seen Marashevkovich appear before the one of the committees in the Northern Ireland Assembly. We saw David Frost do likewise, unprecedented as far as I, I'm, I'm aware, which is really interesting. It suggests a commitment on both sides to develop their understanding of the situation on the ground and try and then take those issues um, away. And I think if you look at the, the narrative of the, the EU, it's very much in, driven by this sense that, okay, well, we've consulted with people in Northern Ireland, we want to do what's in the interest of Northern Ireland. Um, and that is also increasingly shared by the, the, the UK government. If, if there is to be a longer term for, for the protocol um, and the governance arrangements need to be effective, then I think okay, those sort of arrangements need to be formalised, regularised um, and possibly built on. I think that, let's remember, in terms of the governance of the, of the whole protocol, this was meant to be a backstop arrangement, which was actually not intended to come into force. And if it did come into force, was going to be temporary. Um, but then these arrangements were simply adopted for, for the relationship. Another dimension you asked about the member states, I think, I think this comes down to trust, this whole question which has been has bedeviled the, the protocol um, since it was uh, since it came into force, and even before it fully came into force, because things had to be done in, in, in 2020. The trust levels are so low. We see this partly also in, in the fact that, okay, when you have meetings of the Joint Committee and the Specialised Committee, member states attend alongside the UK, as alongside the Commission. don't think that's a regular feature of the EU's engagement with, with third parties. And part of that is essentially to show, okay, this is not just the, the Commission speaking to you, this is the European Union. I suppose a, a barometer of how things are going will be when you don't get those member states turning up to the, those meetings. This will only change, I think, once you get trust. But if, if things were to go the other way, if they were to get worse, what could the what could the EU do? I mean, on, on, a, on a recent um, visit to Brussels, when, when we spoke to people in the institutions and the member states, for example, I was really surprised that it was the, the diplomat from one of the larger member states who just said, look, we should just retaliate, we should just suspend parts of the TCA. What, what's the sort of the, the, the armory? What, what are the... What are the various levels and, and stages of which the you know, possibility that the EU could activate? Well, I mean, already we've been seeing the EU react in a low-key way by, you know, going to not fully implementing the TCA in the sense of not going forward with such things as Ryzen, etc. And they've been increasingly explicit in saying we're not doing this because you're not fully implementing the withdrawal agreement and the protocol. What they've done now in response to the NI protocol bill to restart infringement proceedings um, that were suspended last year uh, around the extension of the grace periods. And now they're starting new ones on the parts of the protocol that aren't being uh, implemented properly, as mentioned before, border control posts and sharing of data. And I think they have to tread carefully in obviously being proportionate. So in, in legal terms, you know, this could end up with I think an initial thing for infringement proceedings, potentially fines being issued. That might not, you know, make much of a scratch on, on the, the UK. Um, symbolically, it would be imp important and significant in, in terms of what that means for the UK 
in its relations with other international players. But things could escalate considerably all the way up to disruption to the TCA or basically you could do such things as rigorous implementation, to use that phrase, of checks and controls as required through the TCA. And so you would begin to see fairly in fairly short order effects in GB of their very thorough checks and controls on, on the EU side. But you could go all the way up to full or partial suspension of the TCA and the reintroduction of tariffs, let alone non-tariff barriers. And I think the EU is considering this and it seems to be quite clear that it sees what the UK is proposing here as a breach of international law and it takes it very seriously. Bearing in mind this is the third time we've been at this point. And as you say, you say they're kind of keen to show how serious it is. And I think if if the, if this bill becomes law, then that's definitely on the table. And this is the difference that they have now compared to 2020, when the UK explicitly said it was going to break international law and that it is able to, to retaliate in ways that would have very clear and almost immediate effects on GB in particular. Uh, just one little thing. Uh, so all of that arsenal that it has means that the prospect of an Irish land border becoming hardened um, is more distant. And I think definitely the EU would be keen to exercise everything it can on on that side of things um, rather than to, you know, consider the possibility of building that hard Irish land border, not least out of concern for Ireland still. The DUP is refusing to go to government currently after the assembly elections um, on because of the protocol. How how do you think that situation will um, will play out? Is, are, are we going to see a kind of permanent suspension of Stormont and direct rule? Or what do you, what do you think will happen? Um, so possible scenarios. Well, uh, there is a means by which because the DUP has exercised every lever it can in disruption. This gives a possibility of an in, like a, um, a step-by-step approach to going back in. So in the first instance, it could nominate a speaker to allow the assembly to sit. Um, and then, of course, the possibility of nominating a deputy first minister to allow a new executive to be formed. However, it does look unlikely that they're willing to do that. And most certainly, I mean, the, the indications are from the time being that the DUP is not going to allow a new executive to be formed until the legislation becomes a lot firmer or basically becomes an act, you know, until it's passed. So there is a possibility of there being another assembly election at the end of, well, sorry, announced at the end of October, potentially to be held within 12 weeks. And the DUP would like to think that its hardline support would help consolidate unionist votes around it. And certainly the polling would suggest that its supporters a uh, very much of the view that they're doing the right thing here. However, that's not the view of the majority of voters, and it's certainly, you know, it's, it's, it's far from guaranteed that the DUP would do better in another assembly election. And then there are many, many other possibilities, including a snap election in the UK itself and what that might mean in, for politics here. And most particularly, I think, maybe this is wishful thinking, but I don't think the protocol will remain a that much of a of an issue of interest amongst UK government ministers, let alone amongst MPs, let alone amongst the British electorate. One, one thing to, to add is I think we can anticipate the DUP taking a very hard line here because their level of trust in Boris Johnson and the Conservative government to deliver on promises is exceedingly low. But opinion polling we've been doing has been registering it in um, single-digit figures um, for the last 18 months. But it's particularly striking in the case of the DUP when they've been made various promises over the last number of years um, for their support for the to support the UK um, government, um, which have been that, that that have not been delivered on. We see that most obviously in the version of the withdrawal agreement that the version of the protocol that Boris Johnson signed up to, and then the various commitments that he made, um, promises he made about there being no Irish Sea border. Um, whereas I think they feel very much sold out, sold down the line on that one, and they they see this as probably their, their moment when they have got maximum leverage over the, the UK government and will want to ensure that uh, they do secure as many of the outcomes that they want as possible before they, they concede ground and go back into the, the executive. 
I think it's very, very significant that the British government is pointing to the Good Friday Belfast Agreement as being the, the reason why it probably has to act in this way and pointing to the fact the Assembly and Executive aren't functioning. Because, of course, we've been here many, many times before. It's very familiar in NI, unfortunately. But the way that that's been resolved in the past, including as recently as January 2020, has been through a joint British-Irish approach using diplomatic persuasion and negotiation with all the parties. And this is an extraordinary situation now in which a very familiar pattern has happened, one of the largest parties exercising a veto. But the UK government is saying the only way to deal with this is by, you know, breaking, changing UK law, let alone international law. This is worrying because of where, for, for sorts of reasons, but most particularly where that places the Irish government and how it's completely excluded from a process and indeed a place um, that it's been so closely, necessarily so closely involved with in the past, including in very difficult moments such as we're in at the moment. And, and finally, um, I, know, I know, Katie, that you're, you're, um, you have done or been involved in um, research on, on border poles. I just wondered what that tells you about the prospects of a close relationship between Northern Ireland and Ireland and maybe even the possibility of, of unification. The Northern Ireland Life and Time Survey is a really good way of testing change in that regard in terms of people's views on the constitutional status of Northern Ireland. And we've most recently published um, the results from 2021. And we can see from that that there's increasing support for Irish unification. So that went up by five percentage points compared to one the previous year in 2020. And perhaps most significantly in the context of this discussion, we've seen continuing rise in the view that um, Brexit makes United Ireland more likely. And what is very striking is the plurality of unionists thinking that Brexit makes United Ireland more likely. So 45% of unionists think that's the case. When we asked around, does it make you more in favour of Irish unity? We see basically nationalists, increasingly, of the, you know, increasingly strong nationalist view Yes, it makes them more in favour of Irish unification. And of unionists post-protocol, we see an intensification of the view that it makes them more resistant to Irish unification. And this is reflected in other questions as well in the Life and Time survey, i.e. intensification of nationalist and unionist sentiment at either end. And that might come as a surprise because we know that that Alliance Party, the non-aligned Alliance Party, has done particularly well in, in recent elections. But actually, when we're looking at the the data, we see that non-aligned, neither position actually shrinking. It's still the largest, uh, but it is shrinking. Katie Hayward, David Finmore, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to us. Thank you to our guests. Please join us for the next episode of Good Neighbours.